Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Remain standing as we hear from Genesis 25 and Hebrews 12. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of the red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. From Hebrews 12. See that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, good morning. I'm so glad that you're here and so thankful that so many of you read your emails and you came early and excited and here we go. Uh, I, I don't necessarily love when uh, pastors get up here and riff on life, uh, but I'm going to afford myself that privilege this morning uh, and just tell you how thankful I am that uh, I got, we, Amanda and I, got to share Kelly with you ladies this weekend and uh, that she led in worship. Uh, I met Kelly in a parking lot at Union University 18 years ago uh, this month, and little did I know on that night in Jackson, Tennessee, uh, that I would look more like Jesus and love Jesus more because of Kelly and her husband, Carter. Uh, We have shared some of the highest highs and lowest lows in our life, and I just encourage you to go find a friend that you can keep for life and pour into them and uh, pursue Christ with them. And also, if you're a woman here and you came uh, to the women's retreat, I just want to thank you for that. What you may not know in coming to that is that you, in many ways, fulfilled God's calling on our life. 18 months ago, we sat in uh, Ben and Tiffany's den on what we thought was just a quick vacation to Vermont. And Ben looked at us and ask, what do you think the Lord has gifted you to do? And I kept silent because I didn't want to move to Vermont, and I knew he was trying to get me to move here. (laughs) So I looked at Amanda, and she said, discipling women and convincing women that they have to be in the Word. And I knew deep down in the deepest part of my soul in that closet where I don't go in very much, that the Lord was calling us here, not because of what he would ask me to do, but because of what he would ask my wife to do. 
And when Ben's eyebrows did that thing where they go above his hairline and his eyes get as big as saucers and he flashes those stupid white teeth, I knew, I knew that the Lord was calling us to Vermont. And so I'm not thanking you as your pastor or one of your pastors, but I'm just thanking you as a really proud husband that you fulfilled what the Lord had called us to do. All right, so sorry about all of that. All right, okay, let's get into the text. So last week, Eric preached Genesis 24, and here we are at the end of Genesis 25, and Eric, uh, Isaac and Rebecca had just gotten married in this kind of uh, weird Hallmark-esque love story at the end of 24, and here we are at the end of 25, and their, their boys are already grown. So it's like we missed an episode on Netflix. So I'm just going to catch you up. A lot happens in 25 that I don't want us to just overlook. So we're going to walk through it really quickly. So at the beginning of Genesis 25, we read that Abraham, so this is after Sarah dies, he remarries, he has some other kids. And Genesis 25:11 says, after Abraham's death, God blessed Isaac who lived near Beer Lahai Roy. Uh, then we're told that Ishmael has a lot of sons, 12 to be exact, and those 12 sons will become 12 leaders of 12 tribes. And that should, like, peak your, your, your flag should go up, that that means something uh, uh, in the, uh, ahead of time. Um, and that's on purpose. But then, in contrast, Ishmael, who isn't the son of the promise, he has sons, but Isaac who is the son of the promise, has exactly zero sons. So look at verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord was receptive to his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. So Rebekah gets pregnant. She is pregnant with twins. It's a really hard pregnancy. Uh, it feels like the babies are fighting each other in the womb. So she inquires of the Lord, what's happening? Why is this happening? Uh, and the Lord gives her this prophecy. He says, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Uh, so she gives birth. And lo and behold, the first one comes out. He's like this hairy red kid. Uh, and the second one comes, and he's holding the heel of the first one. So in a moment of insane creativity with names, they named the first one Esau, which means red. And they named the second one heel grabber, or Jacob. Um, and so there we have Jacob and Esau are born. So here we get to Genesis uh, 25, 27. So uh, we're going to walk through this passage, and then we're going to kind of break it down. You know I like to give you points, but that's coming later on uh, in the text. So let's just walk through this passage. We'll see what's going on, uh, and then we'll go from there. So verse 27 and 28. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, an outdoorsman, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game. But Rebecca loved Jacob. So Isaac and Rebecca have this, you know, moment where there's like camels and veils and like fields that they love each other, and it's this great love story. But here at the end of Genesis 25, their love story has kind of already deteriorated. So they picked, they both picked a favorite son for different reasons, and they don't hide that. They're just very open with this is my favorite, this is your favorite. It's not quite as romantic as it was in the last chapter. 
So Esau is the firstborn. So uh, he's this like brawny, hairy, ginger outdoorsman. Uh, he reeks of masculinity. He's big. He's gnarly. His hands are callous. You know, he's one of those men that just can't hide. He's just so big that like there's no way he's hiding. Uh, his friends, they call him Big Red. Uh, and he is, if you've ever seen Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, he is Yukon Cornelius. I think we have a picture of him. This is Esau, okay? So that's what you need to think of when you hear Esau. When Esau walks out of the woods, you can just know that something dead is in Esau's hands. That's just how it happens. So that's great. It's great that he goes to the woods and he kills things because Isaac, uh, Isaac loves Jacob, um, Esau uh, because he likes wild game. Uh, Isaac loves a good venison backstrap with mashed potatoes and gravy, and Esau was born and bred to get just that thing. So if Esau is Yukon Cornelius, then Jacob, who the secondborn is, he is Hermie the elf. <laughs> Jacob is a mama's boy. Uh, he's soft. He's never won a physical altercation with Esau. He doesn't like the woods. He prefers a bubble bath. Uh, his skills are used inside the house, not outside the house. And whatever Esau kills with the best of them, Jacob can cook with the best of them. So I'm not making any statements on masculinity. I'm just painting you a picture, okay? So if you like to cook and take bubble baths, then soak to the glory of God. I just want you to know who... <laughs> Uh, Esau and Jacob are. So look at verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. That's why he was also named Edom, which is another word for red. So Esau has been out in the fields doing whatever brawny men do out in the fields, and he comes in and he is hangry. Like this is the definition of hangry. Look at verse 31. Uh, so Jacob is an absolute weasel, uh, and he responds to Esau. He says, first, sell me your birthright. So let's stop right there. There are plenty of sermons coming in this mini-series that we're in in Genesis uh, that's going to look to Jacob's sin and the fact that for all intents and purposes, Jacob is really, quite frankly, a terrible guy. Uh, but today, we're just going to look at Esau, okay? So I understand that there's more going on. Uh, there's a lot going on with Jacob, but we'll, we'll get to Jacob. You can, you can trust us on that. So what was Esau's birthright? You know the answer to this. We've been in Genesis for some time now. Esau is the firstborn son, so he is the rightful heir. So what had God promised to Abraham? He's promised land and seed. God had come to Abraham and told them that he would give him a good land, and from him, from his son, he would build a nation that would outnumber the stars in the sky. And so further, through Abraham, all the nations on earth would be blessed. So I want you to flip over to Genesis 27 and look at verse 28. So just in, in just two chapters, Rebekah and Jacob are going to scheme together to trick Isaac into giving Jacob Esau's blessing. So verse 28 in chapter 27. May God give to you from the dew of the sky and from the rich, richness of the land an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow and worship to you. Be master over your relatives. May your mother's sons bow and worship to you. Those who curse you will be cursed, and those who bless you will be blessed. Esau is the firstborn. He's the heir. 
He gets the same blessing that God promised Abraham, and the promise goes on down through the line. Or he should have been the rightful heir. Look back at Genesis 25, verse 32. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die. So what good is a birthright to me? As it turns out, Big Red is a little bit of a drama king. He's tired, he's hungry, but he is in no way about to die. Verse 33, Jacob said, swear to me. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. And in one weak moment, he chooses the satisfaction of today over the promise of tomorrow. And so Esau despised his birth. And the truth is that no satisfaction came. Never. In fact, the book of Obadiah tells us that in one moment when Esau took and ate and chased the satisfaction of today, he gave up the promise of God, and from his line came a nation who God would destroy because of their pride. And so that's the story of Esau selling his birthright in Genesis 25. So what do we do with that? I want you to keep a finger in Genesis 25, but I want you to flip over to Hebrews 11 and 12. You're going to need a Bible today, flipping between these. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the rack in front of you or close by that you could grab. So the author of Hebrews, who we don't know who that is, but the author of Hebrews throughout the book is making the argument that Jesus is superior to every prophet, priest, and king of Israel. And ultimately, Jesus comes in and establishes a new covenant that is superior to the old covenant. The author establishes this superiority in, in Jesus in four distinct sections. And then in chapter 11, he moves to a conclusion. And his conclusion is uh, that above all else, we must, as believers, follow Jesus. And so in chapter 12, he traces kind of this uh, genealogy of faith of sorts through our spiritual ancestors of the Old Testament. So the chapter begins in, verse, uh, in chapter 11. It says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen, for by it our ancestors won God's approval. He's arguing that all of these, quote, heroes of the faith acted in faith, believing the promise because of the one who promised it. In chapter 12, he calls the believer to fix our eye on Jesus, a fulfillment that the people of the Old Testament hadn't seen yet. This focus on Jesus will keep us from sin, and it will be the mechanism in which God disciplines those he loves. Then right here in Hebrews 12, in verse uh, 16, after there are some 17 or so examples of faith, he uses Esau as the one example of immorality and irreverence. Look at Hebrews 12, 16 and 17. And make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single mill. For you know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought it with tears, because he didn't find an opportunity for repentance." Hebrews 11 and 12 teaches us how to interpret Genesis 25. 
And I want to share three truths with you today uh, about this story and what it teaches us. Uh, So I'm going to let you know what those are, and then we'll walk through all of them. So number one, because of Jesus, you have a birthright. Number two, because of sin, you are prone to sell your birthright. And number three, because of faith, you can endure. First, because of Jesus, you have a birthright. We've already recounted what uh, what Esau's birthright was. In the time that he was born, as the firstborn, he was the rightful heir to the promise of God that had been passed down to him from his grandfather, Abraham. We first see those promises in Genesis 12. When God comes to Abram while he is living in Ur of the Chaldeans, and God says to him in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Go out from your land, your relatives, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. God promised Abraham that from him a nation would be born. That nation would be the physical nation of Israel, but more importantly, more so, God was building a spiritual family through Jesus. And Paul explains the implications of this in Galatians 3, 27 through 29, and then down in 4, 4 through 7. So Galatians 3, 27, for those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. 4-4, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God made you an heir. God has made us, me and you, heirs. And if we are heirs, then we have a birthright. Look at Hebrews 12, 18 and following. For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet, And the sound of words, those who heard it begged that not another word would be spoken to them. For they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. To myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn, whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. What in the world is he talking about in verse 18? 18 through 21 describes the people of Israel coming to Mount Sinai just after they crossed the Red Sea. Moses has been called by God to go up to the mountain to meet with God who has descended on the mountain of Sinai. But to meet with God is a terrifying thing. God is holy. He has incomparable power and might and holiness. And when he descended on the mountain, it was consumed by smoke, earthquakes, and thunder and lightning. 
The mountain resounded with loud trumpet blast. And when Israel stood before the mountain, they trembled in awe and terror and fear. Because being a sinful man in the presence of God is costly. There are severe consequences. And Sinai was a mountain they could touch, but it was terrifying. That was the mountain of the law. That was the mountain of stone tablets. That was the mountain of the old covenant. But look at verse 22. Instead. Don't ever look at instead. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, you and I come to Mount Zion instead. It's not a physical mountain that we can go to, but whether a heavenly one that we've been promised in the eternal kingdom of God. Our birthright is Mount Zion. And what does that afford to us? It says a myriad of angels, a festive gathering, the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood. To myriads of angels and a festive gathering. Heaven is an assembled throng of heavenly beings joyfully gathered to celebrate and worship the Lord. Have you ever considered that your very best day on earth pales in comparison to day after day after day in the heavenly kingdom of God? Brothers and sisters, we're headed to a party. Heaven is filled day after day with endless celebration and joy. To the assembly of the firstborn, whose names have been written in heaven. That's you and me, if you have believed in Jesus. It's the congregation of the people of God down through the ages. I love coming to New King, and I hope you love coming to New King, and you love being with your family. But when we get to heaven, it'll make New King seem downright joyless. As heirs of God, we get to be with all the people of God throughout the ages and without sin. So you can like all of them. It's going to be great. (laughs) To a judge who is God of all. Certainly we get God and that's an unspeakable joy. But what the author is getting at here is justice. In Mount Zion, in the heavenly city of God, there will be no sin. Justice will reign with unmitigated glory. To the spirits of righteous people made perfect. There's not one citizen in the eternal kingdom of God who is not completely righteous and completely perfect. Not one. You and I will be perfect. But the best of all, the best of all is Jesus. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood. When God descended on, the, on Mount Sinai, the people were told to come, but only so far. But Jesus has come to me. Not because the God of the New Testament is different from the Old Testament. We often think that the Old Testament God was smoke and fire and unapproachable. But when we get to the new guy, Jesus is this nice guy. He'll give you a hug. It's like bad God, good God. But the truth is, God is not different from old covenant to new covenant. The difference is you. You're different. God couldn't be approached in the Old Testament because he's holy and the people weren't. God can't be approached in the New Testament because he is holy and the people aren't. Except, sorry for bounding the pulpit, except that 
Your unrighteousness has been washed away in the blood of Jesus, and Jesus' righteousness has been placed on you. You're different. God is the same. And therefore, Jesus says, come to me. And what about the sprinkled blood? In the tabernacle and later on in the temple, the priest would take blood from the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it around the tabernacle and the temple. And it was a symbolic purification of the land from sin. In heaven, because of the sprinkled blood of Christ, the land has been made pure. It is the sprinkled blood of Jesus that guarantees for us an eternal inheritance and secures the final forgiveness of sins. It's the blood of Jesus that brings us to Mount Zion boldly into the glorious presence of the living God. Because of Jesus, you have a birthright. Second, because of sin, you too are prone to sell your birthright. What was happening in Esau's heart when he sold his birthright for a bowl of stew? Look back to Genesis 25, verse 32. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die. So what good is a birthright to me? And then flip back to Hebrews 12, 16. And make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. Esau acted out of faithlessness. He was unfaithful to God. He felt temporary discomfort and traded away his birthright to alleviate himself in the moment. A full belly was more important to Esau than the birthright that was rightly his because Isaac was his father and because he was the firstborn son. James 1, 14 through 15 says, But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to death. Esau allowed the enticement of his own evil desire to convince him a full stomach was better than the birthright God had promised his family for generations. Sin does that in each of our lives. When we experience temptation or enticed by our own evil desire, we declare that the fleshly benefits of today outweigh the glorious gifts of God tomorrow. When I gossip, I declare that the pleasure of someone else's misfortune is more important than the kindness of God. When I respond in anger, I declare that tearing, the tearing down of someone is more important than the gentleness of God. When I look at pornography or pursue sexual satisfaction any way outside of the marriage of one man and one woman, I declare the sexual satisfaction of my body is more important than the purity of God. When I lie, I declare the covering of truth is more important than the truth of God. When I hate, I declare the love of God is unnecessary. When I am jealous, I declare that my desire or my comfort or my wants are more important than the God, what God has graciously given me in my life. When I'm drunk, I declare there's no need for sober-mindedness, and I allow myself to be devoured by the adversary. When I sin, when we sin, whatever that sin is, we are declaring that God is in fact not God. That what he has for my life is of absolutely no importance. That the God of life is not worshiping and we bow down to the God of death. And that's what happened in Esau's heart that day in Jacob's kitchen. 
Esau was not merely disinterested in his birthright, but rather he was disinterested in the holy things of God. And what happened? Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says this. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He gave up the kingdom of God. Look back at Hebrews 12, 17. For you know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought it with tears because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. So what does that mean? Does that mean that God refused to give Esau an opportunity for repentance? I don't think that's what's happening at all. I think we see, what we see here is an example of someone who regrets what he has done, but he never truly repents of what he has done. Paul says in 2 Corinthians seven ten, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Esau never shows any genuine repentance over what he has done. He only regrets that he lost his birthright to Jacob. He wasn't honest about his sin. He wasn't honest about what God thinks about his sin. 1 John 3, 4 says, Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. True repentance names sin correctly. True repentance says that sin is lawlessness. True repentance hates sin like God hates sin. So I want to ask you, have you repented of your sins or do you merely regret them? Romans 6, 12 through 14 says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourself to God as weapons for, for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Lastly, because of faith, you can endure. The author of Hebrews uses Esau as the one example of how not to live. But he uses 17 examples of faith. But why? What's he doing in chapter 11? You may have heard of this as the hall of faith. He's teaching us about perseverance. Perseverance is the demonstration of faith. Esau didn't persevere. His belly got a little hungry, and he gave up the things of God. He lost his faith in God. But Hebrews 11 teaches us that if we believe the promises of Christ, if we cling to faith, if we persevere, then and only then can we lay, can we lay aside our sin and endure until we come to Mount Zion. And when we do that, as Hebrews 11.2 says, we will win the approval of God. Let's walk through Hebrews 11. It says, By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. That is, he sacrificed, uh, his sacrifice pointed to the need of a sacrificial Savior. 
By faith, Enoch was taken away, and so he did not experience death. That is, God honored his faith in such a way that he didn't experience death. By faith, Noah built an ark motivated by godly fear. That is, he recognized the holiness of God and acted in opposition to the unrighteousness of the world. By faith, Abraham went. By faith, Abraham stayed. By faith, he raised Isaac and Jacob, who looked forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That is, Abraham lived his entire life as a foreigner in a land that he didn't own yet, believing that God would give his family a fruitful land and descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And by faith, Sarah received power to conceive. That is, she believed the promise of the promiser. In verse 13, the author takes a break. Look down there with me. These all died in faith. Although they had not received the things that were promised, but they saw from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on earth. That is to say that they were consumed by the promiser, not the promise. He was enough. That God had acted in their life was enough. They knew the promise would come because they knew the promiser what they couldn't see with their eyes, they could see with their hearts. They lived day in and day out, trusting in the God of promise. Look at verse 14. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had the opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Do you desire a better place? We'll get there in a minute, but you have Jesus. None of these did. They couldn't see him, but they believed in him. Do you desire a better place or do you, do you desire the satisfaction of the moment? Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That city he's prepared for them, he's prepared for you and for me. And are you living like a citizen of that city? Are you living like you belong here? By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. That is, he considered God to be able to even raise him from the dead. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning the things to come. That is, he believed that God was going to build a nation out of these two sons, just like God had promised his father Abraham. By faith, Jacob blessed the sons of Joseph. That is, he trusted and believed that God was faithful to do that thing which he had said he would do. By faith, Joseph spoke of the Exodus. That is, he believed what God told Abraham in Genesis 15. Know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. By faith, Moses' parents didn't fear the king's edict. That is, they trusted that Moses was set apart to fulfill the call of God on his life. By faith, Moses identified with Israel instead of Egypt. That is, that the pleasures of Egypt paled in comparison to his true home, the promised land of God. That is, unlike Esau, Moses knew the fleeting pleasures of sin lead to destruction. And by faith, Moses left Egypt. That is, the fear of Pharaoh would lead to death, but the fear of God would lead to life in the promised land. 
By faith, Moses instituted the Passover. That is, he believed that God would offer a substitutionary sacrifice better than every single one of those lambs. By faith, Moses crossed the Red Sea. That is, he believed that God was a liberator of his people. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. That is, that Joshua believed that God would fight for them. By faith, Rahab welcomed the spies. That is, she believed that, the, that God didn't just save ethnic Israel, but the redemption of sins was for all people. Look at verse 32. Time is too short. That's your pastor's life verse. By faith, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets conquered kingdom, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put armies to flight. Women received their dead back to them, raised to life. Others were tortured. Others experienced mocking, scourging, bonds, imprisonment. They were stoned, sawed in two, died by the sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. They wandered in deserts and mountains and lived in caves and holes. That is, they acted by faith, believing that whatever happened to them on earth did not compare to the glory of Christ as king. They lived in the old covenant, believing the new covenant. They believed what they didn't fully know, that the blood of Jesus fulfilled the promises of God. Chapter 12, therefore, therefore, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Don't be Esau, don't pick up the soup. Instead, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Not one person in Hebrews 11 lived without sin. Abraham told multiple kings that his wife was just his sister and gave her up to them. Sarah used and abused her slave Hagar. Moses sinned against the Lord in such a way that he was unable to go into the promised land. Sin easily ensnares us. It clings to us. How do we lay it, how do we lay it down? We keep our eyes on Jesus. We want we run with endurance, that is perseverance, that is by faith, we believe the promise of the promiser. Brothers and sisters, every single person listed in Hebrews 11 lived without Jesus. Not one of them had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. But you and I do. We have experienced the best part of the promise, but there's still more to come. And as we close, I want you to consider four more verses in Hebrews 12. Verse 12 through 13. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees and make straight paths for your feet so, so that what is lame may not be dislocated but healed instead. And then turn... Uh, Jump down to verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably 
with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Brothers and sisters, we will be tempted to sin before I sit down in my seat. The remainder of your life will be a fight against the temptation of sin. But strengthen your tired hands and your weakened knees with the word of God. Run with endurance each and every day walking in Christ Jesus. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And remember this, as John wrote in 1 John. My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful. That through the shedding of Jesus' blood, we have been grafted into Abraham's seed. We praise you, God, that in our death and sin, you chose us and adopted us as sons and gave us all the benefits that you give your son. Father, we are a desperately sinful people in need of a Savior. And in your grace and mercy, you have given us Jesus. Father, we pray through your Holy Spirit living in our hearts that we would strengthen our hands, that we would strengthen our weak knees, that we would lift our heads, and we would walk every day towards Mount Zion, trusting and believing that you are the God of promises, that you are the God of faithfulness, that all the things that you said are coming through in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Father, in the dark nights of our souls, lift our heads and strengthen us so that we may run with endurance. Father, we beg you to give us the courage to lay down sin, to fix our eyes on Jesus, and to believe that you are enough, that the satisfaction of tomorrow is so far better than the satisfaction of today. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.